Our New Testament reading in the passage from which our text comes is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Once more, hear the word of God. And seeing the multitudes, he, that is Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And by way of reminder, our text this evening is verse 4, which reads, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Dear church and especially children, I ask you to think about the questions that I'm going to ask you as we start to learn about God's word together. When was the last time that you cried or you felt sad? How long has it been since you cried? Why did you cry? Did you cry for joy? Did you cry for sorrow? Are you the kind of person who never cries and are glad of that? Are you the kind of person who never cries and wishes you could find an appropriate way to express your emotions and be relieved of a burden? Did you have a good reason to cry or a sinful reason to cry? I began with these questions in this sermon because Jesus talks about how important it is to mourn. In our time in God's Word this afternoon, we will consider Matthew 5, verse 4, the second of the Beatitudes. There, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, in the second Beatitude, we learn about happy mourners. We learn the reasons they are mourning and the ways they will be comforted. Though God has inspired every word of Scripture, and he's given us his word as a revelation of himself, in his wisdom, God has chosen to reveal himself to people as part of that process of the Bible being written and compiled. God has not told us everything he knows, but he has first revealed himself to individuals and then to the nation of Israel, and he guided and he guarded the men who wrote what they heard what they saw, and what they experienced, so that they wrote exactly what God decreed that they should write. And yet they wrote as individuals with their own expertise and their own experiences and their own characters. Since the Bible is the revelation of God given in a human context, we ought not to be surprised that God would indicate what kind of emotional response we should have as we relate to him. The Bible doesn't idealize life on earth, here and now. There are nine different Greek words used to express grief 
sorrow and sadness in the New Testament. There are people who call themselves Christians who teach that once you become a Christian, you will be happy, healthy, and wealthy. They make it sound as if nothing will go wrong for God's people in this world. That's what preachers of the prosperity gospel say. But more importantly, God doesn't say this. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that they would have trouble or tribulation in this world. Reference for that is John 16.32. Though there are remnants of the beauty of paradise in this world, though we may enjoy stable government and general orderliness in society, though you may love your family and enjoy your work, all those things notwithstanding, this world can be a sad place. There's a Dutch saying, every house has its cross, and house and cross rhyme in Dutch. Imagine how overwhelmed you would be if every person you had ever met lined up and told you about their cares, their problems, their concerns, sorrows, and struggles. Though there are joys in the lives of all people, and I would not minimize or discount that in any way, yet it is also true that there are sorrows as well. That ought to lead us to ask the question, is this what Jesus meant when he spoke of those who mourn? Is it enough to experience the sorrows that come upon all people, losing work, experiencing the end of a relationship, losing loved ones to death, and experiencing particular trials and burdens in your life? Is it enough to be conscious of and concerned over the suffering of others? Is this all that Jesus means by the word mourning? No, dear ones. These things are a part of what it means to mourn. But if we were to draw a set of concentric circles in order to kind of diagram what it is that Jesus is directing us to, mourning over the sorrows of life would fall into the largest of these circles, into the uttermost circle. There is a legitimate way to mourn over the sorrows of life. I'm reminded of Jesus on the way to the grave of Lazarus, his friend. John 11.35 tells us simply and poignantly, Jesus wept. Mourning is necessary and even healthy for us as people who live in a fallen world. We have reason to cry, and God has given the emotional release of tears. Tears are the God-given vent to release stress, emotional pressure, and the heavy burden of sorrow. Listen, brothers, there are times when it is profoundly right and fitting for a man to cry. If this was true of Jesus, the paragon of godly manhood, God's pattern for what the ideal man is to be, it is no shame, it is no sin to cry. In fact, crying is the right thing to do. It is most appropriate at some times. There is a time to weep, says Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Life would be unbearable if we did not have the legitimate outlets of mourning 
and tears. Before we move on, let me ask those who are married, is your marriage emotionally healthy? Is there room in your marriage for every legitimate expression of emotion? Brothers, will you make your marriage a safe place for your wife to express herself, where she feels free to cry when she needs to? And sisters, do your husbands know that they can make themselves vulnerable, also emotionally? Does your husband know that you will love and respect him more and be drawn closer to him when he expresses legitimate emotions in this way? All this said, we need to be clear that there are times when it is wrong to mourn, wrong to cry. Think of wicked King Ahab of Israel, the northern ten tribes. Remember how he saw Naboth's vineyard and he wanted to own it for himself. And do you remember how Ahab reacted when Naboth refused to sell the vineyard to him? We read, So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. This is the sorrow of an unmet sinful desires. Could anyone here be living in this way? You Perhaps you want something you may not have. And in his wisdom, God has not given it to you. And yet, could it be that you are mourning? You refuse to be happy until you receive this thing, whatever it is that you want. Friend, if that's you, you are adding sin to sin. And you must repent of that sinful desire and that sinful reaction. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he included the proper expression of emotions of sorrow and grief. Yet there was so much more to what Jesus meant by these words. We get, began with the largest, uttermost circle, outermost circle, as we viewed the text. Now let's move to the smaller circle, closer to the central meaning of the text. Blessed mourners react as they do when they see the impact of sin in this world. This world is not as it ought to be. God's revealed will is being broken all the time. People are breaking God's law. Why are there people who want to work who can't find work? Why are there so many mothers who are raising children with no father in the home? Why are there people who live in such deep poverty? Why are there wars that injure and kill so many civilians? Why are there diseases, disabilities, and death? These things re exist as results of sin. Adam's sin, as we saw this morning, your sin and mine. Christian, if your eyes don't weep, surely your heart weeps when you think of these things. When we think about the moral impact of the human race, on the basis of Scripture, we find that sin has ravaged this world. Suppose that someone showed you two pictures of land near the Amazon River in Brazil. Imagine that the first picture showed the area as we know it today, with towering trees, greenery, vines, orchids, and many birds and jungle animals living there. Imagine that the second picture showed the same area with a dry riverbed, sand dunes, and cacti, and a few dry brown blades of grass. The first thing we would ask is, 
What happened? What brought about this great change in this area? What produced such devastation? Well, dear ones, we are living in the desert. We have never known the world as the beautiful rainforest. But the before and after pictures are displayed for us in the Bible. God tells us that sin has brought about the change in this world. God made everything good, even making a suitable helper for Adam. But sin has brought shame, pain, devastation, and death upon creation. The sin of mankind, yours and mine, has done this. Have you learned to weep for this? If your eyes don't weep, does your heart mourn? Let's consider one last group of reasons for mourning. In our group of concentric circles, you can put these reasons in the innermost of the three circles. It is grief for sin, mourning for sin. This is the truth at the heart of the text. Jesus is describing men, women, boys and girls who experience conviction for their sin. But what does this mean? Does it mean that you feel guilty when you've done something wrong? Does it mean feeling regret, wishing you had not thought, said, or done something? Or wishing you had done, said, or thought something? Does it mean that when you know how you will be punished, you feel badly? Does conviction mean that someone found out what you did and now you'll get in trouble? No. All these things are not conviction of sin. All these things can be involved in conviction of sin. But if these things like guilt, regret, fear of punishment stand alone, if that's all there is going on here, then it's not conviction of sin. To be convicted of sin in your heart means that you are confronted by the reality that you have sinned firstly, primarily against God. Sin is so bad because God is so good. If you are convicted of your sin, you will agree that God's law is good. As Paul says of his experience in Romans 7.12, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The convicted sinner says, I sinned. I broke God's good law. I have sinned against God and against others. Someone might say at this point, what does conviction of sin look like in the life of a covenant child? In his grace, God spared me from going in the way of gross sins, of, of great and notorious sins. I grew up in the church. There never was a time when I didn't know and love the Lord. What does conviction of sin look like for someone like me? In answering that question, we need to consider what sin is. Sin is so much more than breaking God's law with our actions. There are people who claim that Christians can live sinlessly in this life. And in order to make this claim, they define sin in this simple outward way, in the narrowest sense it's possible to, do, to define it. If anyone here thinks that he or she hasn't sinned for some time, you need to understand that sin is so much broader than a few forbidden actions. What is sin and where does it start? Sin starts in the heart. 
And it is the rejection of God and his law and the promotion of self, my desire, or someone or something else, and putting that in God's place. Jesus knew that sin starts in the heart. And this is what he said in Mark seven twenty through 23. What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evils, evil things come from within and defile a man. Dear ones, as soon as we realize that sin starts in the heart, it should bring about a radical shift in the way we view people. We won't think of the immoral people as the sinful ones and ourselves as the not-so-sinful ones. I understand we, you passed by someone in medical distress as the result of a drug overdose. These words were in the manuscript before this happened. So when we understand that sin is a heart-first issue, it comes from inside, we won't think of openly, physically, immoral people as the sinful ones and ourselves as the not-so-sinful ones. Have you ever been brought to tears when you considered the ugly things that live in your heart? That's what it means to be a mourner, to realize that God's grace alone has prevented you from carrying out that the wicked desires you had, from saying the harsh word that would have destroyed a person. It's really important for us all to understand that conviction of sin is not just a one-time activity in the Christian life. It continues throughout our time on earth. Paul realized that he was in a battle against his sinful old nature, and he realized that battle continued after God saved him. He gives clear evidence of this in Romans 7. And particularly in verse 24, he cries out, O wretched man that I am, not that what I was, but that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's been proposed, and I haven't dealt with the historicity of this or not, so take it for what it may be worth, but it's been said by commentators that one of the punishments for murder that Paul is alluding to here is that the dead body of the victim would be strapped to the body of the murderer. What a horrible picture it would be to, to think of this, this festering, rotting corpse connected to the body of the murderer. It's a disgusting and an ugly sight and thing to conceive of. Well, congregation, to the Christian with the Holy Spirit living within him, living within her, he thinks, he's learned to think of his sinful old nature as something that is worse than that rotting, stinking, dead body. That is why one element of the Christian life is continual mourning over sin. When God the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart so that you grieve for your sins, then you can grieve for the sins of others and the effects of their sins. That's what the author of Psalm 119 did in verse 136. He says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. 
Do you know that by experience? Again, weeping a weeping heart if your eyes don't weep. Because there are people who do not keep God's law. And they flaunt their wickedness openly. And that which was, that which used to be considered shameful is now celebrated and promoted without a blush, shamelessly. If ever a man wept for the sins of others, it was the prophet, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Listen to what he says in chapters 8 and 9. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. If God has taught you to mourn for your sins, you then are in a position to mourn for those who are satisfied with everything except God, the joys of food and drink, clothes, cars, luxuries of other kinds ungodly relationships and sin of various kinds, the joy that these things bring is so short. In that respect, they can be like the high of the drug addict. Once the pleasure is gone, if you are such a person, you must seek for more of your idol in order to gain the pleasure you once knew. There is pain in the way of sin, either pain in this life or pain in eternity. And if there is such a person here, satisfied with the things and the sins of this world, satisfied with so little, satisfied with the sin that will damn you unless you repent. Friend, saved sinners are weeping for you. Do you hear God's word? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Will the tears of God's people stop you and make you think? Perhaps someone says, why do you preachers talk about sin so much? Very few, pre per, very few churches do that nowadays. Why do you spend so much time talking about sin? I'm talking about sin not as a reaction to what the rest of the church is doing, but because Jesus talked about sin. And he talked about sin not to condemn, but to do us good. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Let's think together now about the ways in which mourners will be comforted. That's the second part of the text. Dear ones, the only way to real, lasting comfort is in the way of genuine, spirit-worked mourning over sin. When he preached his way through the Sermon on the Mount, the Welsh Preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had something telling to say about the church of his day, and I believe it's equally, maybe even more true, of the church of our day. He said that not only does the church not want to hear about sin, but as a result, it has also lost the joy of the Lord. Think about that for a moment. Not only had the church of Martin Lloyd-Jones' day lost or had had no desire to talk and about and learn about sin and the consequences of sin, but consequently, he said that they had also lost the joy of the Lord. Jesus pairs, he connects, mourning over sin and comfort. 
And so Lloyd-Jones says that as long as we have a defective understanding of conviction, we won't have a true joy in the Lord. We won't have a joy that lasts. There are three ways that mourning leads to comfort. The first is in first time or initial repentance. How can you know whether sorrow for sin is part of repentance in your life? Does your sorrow for sin lead you to turn from your sin and to turn toward God? If you think you are mourning because of your sin, but you are continuing in the way of sin, with no change in your desires or your life, you are not repenting. But if you hate your sin, you grieve over your sin, you love what is good, and you now desire to walk in God's way, there is comfort for you. There is meant to be comfort for you. For these are signs that God has granted you the gift of repentance. Everyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation and repents of his sins will be saved. What a comfort there is for you, even in the depths of your conviction of sin. For God saves his people through the way of mourning. Though the way of mourning is a difficult, humbling way, though it leads to poverty of spirit, it leads to the inexpressible comfort of salvation. What, but what can be greater and better than that? No one was ever saved by repenting. But no one was ever saved without repenting either. Repenting means that I turn from my way and I turn to God's way. It begins with a spirit-worked realization that I am a beggar before God. Not only is it true that I have nothing to offer Him, but I have offended the God that I must deal with. Yet, yet the God I have offended has made a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Believing and repenting go together in the Christian life. They are two sides of one coin. And so I ask you, each of you, do you know the comfort of repenting of your sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? This comfort doesn't depend on the circumstances of your life. It doesn't require you to pretend to be doing well when you're empty and sad inside. It's the kind of comfort that will enable you to live and to die happily. What in the world can compare with that? There is comfort in the way of repentance. Next, there is comfort in the way of restoration. Comfort in the way of restoration. To be a Christian means to live in the way of daily conversion. This means that when we sin, when we are convicted that we have sinned in thought, word, or deed, we are sorry about it. We turn from that sin, we stop doing it, we confess it to God, and we come to Christ and we experience the joy, peace, and restoration of being forgiven. We might think of David as an extreme example with his sin of adultery and murder, but he still teaches us about restoration in Psalm 32. This is what we sang earlier. When I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Thy hand was heavy on me. My soul found no relief. But when I owned my trespass, my sin hid not from thee. When I confessed transgression, then thou forgavest me. 
I've used biblical terms like faith, repentance, and forgiveness to describe this process of daily restoration. Listen to how Pastor Ursinus describes the experience of this all. And if you'd like to read along in the Heidelberg Catechism, it's on page 238 and 239 of the Book of Forms and Prayers. I'm going to quote questions 89 and 90 and, and their answers. And we'll see a, a marvelous connection between mourning and comfort here. And I'll give you a moment to get there. Page 238 in the Book of Forms and Prayers, questions 89 and 90. Question 89 asks, what is the dying away of the old self? And the answer, to be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. And question 90, what is the rising to life of the new self? And the answer, wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. Do you hear it, congregation? Here we have both sorrow for sin and joy in God being experienced at the same time. And it is no contradiction. Let me give you one more proof from Scripture before I finish. In Romans 7, 24, we already saw how Paul compares the sin that he fights against to a dead body. And what does he say in verse 25? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Jesus Christ who saves Paul from his sinful old nature. As Paul grieves for the sin that remains in him, he rejoices in the certainty of his salvation in Christ Jesus. That's comfort. The third and last way of comfort we should consider is that of renewal. Repentance, restoration, and now renewal. My mourning brothers and sisters in the Lord. A time will come when you won't have to mourn anymore. When God brings us to glory, He will renew us, body and soul. And we will never sin again. We will go to a place where no one will die, where no one will cry, where no one will be sad anymore. Death will be swallowed up in victory, and God will wipe away all tears from the faces of His people says Isaiah and John the Revelator. That's the eternal, unshakable, certain, glorious comfort of those who mourn. And God's way to that comfort is in the way of mourning for sin and rejoicing in Jesus. Have you found this comfort in Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? And is it your desire to walk in His way? Do you have that certain hope of this glorious comfort? And are you living accordingly? And so, dear ones, I end with a call to balanced, winsome gospel living. How are we to reflect this text? We're to do so by living to show both parts, both mourning for our sins and the comfort of salvation. Let's not follow the broader church rejecting sorrow for sin and trying to whip up our own joy. Let's not overreact to the extreme of the day by only focusing on sorrow for sin. Either response is dishonoring to God because it minimizes the work of Jesus Christ. You have friends from these churches. Let's tell them about the words of Jesus and David and Paul. Let's tell them about our own experiences of 
sorrow for sin, and joy in God through Christ, who comforts us. Let's so live to show them that mourning for sin and comfort in God through Christ are not contradictory. Let's go to show the world and the church the blessedness and the comfort of those who mourn. Tell them about sin. And tell them about salvation in Jesus. And tell them about heaven where we will never sin again. God bless your testimony and make you a means of comfort for his glory and for the good of many. Amen.